again, won't we? Amen. That was the first time of many times, I hope. That was a blessing. Thank you all uh, so very, very much. I, um, I guess probably of men that I know and love and admire and appreciate that have been here to influence our church and influence me, probably Brother Young has been here more than anybody, I think. If not, just about. Probably between you and Dr. Williams, as uh, as far as uh, just coming year after year. And just about, not, not every year, but just about every year, we try to get him here for some help. He'll be teaching, to, uh, preaching tomorrow at the chapel, of course, and then he'll spend, uh, he and Mrs. Young will have a split session with our staff, the men and the ladies split up, and then we'll come back together, and Brother Young will do some training with all of us together. So, so many, many things. Uh, you know, we're all a conglomeration of people who influenced us and influenced our lives, are we not? And so those of you, some of you are a little newer to our church and maybe... Hey, anybody here has not heard Dr. Young before? Raise your hand if you haven't heard Brother Young before. All right, a few folks. And so uh, once in a while, once in a while, somebody will say, that, that's like Brother Ray Young. And uh, so I, 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 I go home and I practice as hard as I can, try to be like Brother Ray Young. But no, no, uh, my pastor taught me, don't try to be like somebody, but don't try not to be like someone. I thought that's pretty good advice. And so, you know, you become like the people you're around, people you admire, people you read after. And I've done all three with the man here. He's been a blessing to me. So open up your minds and hearts and you'll get a blessing tonight. Brother Ray, we love you. Come preach for us. Thank you much. It's great to be back in your church again tonight. Uh, probably as about as many as any church. There's uh, former Howells Anderson students here, many of them, uh, many Howells Anderson graduates in your church, and it's good to get to be here and get to see them again. And then, of course, many of you have gotten to know through the years, and so uh, great to be back in your church. And since we do have so many Howells Anderson graduates, I chose a book in the Bible tonight that they could find. So I'm going to ask you to open your Bible to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 6, if you would, please. <laughs> Genesis chapter 6. And, and I'm going to ask the PA man, do I have the microphone in the right place? Are, are we okay there? Okay, all right, good. All right, good. Genesis chapter 6. And while you're turning there, I want to ask you a question. If you knew uh, the will of God, would you want to be willing to do it? I mean, if you personally knew the will of God, would you want to be willing to do it? Let's look at Genesis chapter 6. And the reason I ask you to turn to that particular chapter is because this is the first place in the Bible where God mentions the heart of man. Now, I want to show you what uh, God, some of what God says here about the heart of man. Look in chapter 6. We'll begin in verse 5. And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination, notice this phrase, of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I'm going to make four sort of introductory statements. My first statement is, is this, is, is that uh, the man's thoughts are connected to his heart. You know, we sometimes think of our thoughts as coming from our brain. And even when I say our thoughts, I point to my brain. But, and, you know, you, you've heard the phrase, uh, well, it just popped in my brain. But to some extent, it popped out of your heart. 
our thoughts are connected to our heart. Now, hold your place there in Genesis chapter 6, because we'll come back in just a moment. But go to Acts chapter 8, if you would. I want to show you an example. The Bible's full of examples of the fact that our thoughts are connected to our heart. But I want to show you just one uh, example right quick. In Acts chapter 8, I'm not going to teach anything from this story. uh, But there is a story in Acts chapter 8 about a, a, a deacon by the name of Philip. He left the church there in Jerusalem, went down to Samaria, and he preached a revival meeting. And in that revival meeting, several people got saved. One of the persons that was saved in that meeting was a man that we would refer to today as a witch doctor. The Bible said he he bewitched people with sorceries. And, And his name was Simon. And so Simon got saved there in the revival meeting. And shortly after the revival meeting, Peter and John also came down from Jerusalem to Samaria. And when they got there, Peter laid hands on some folks and prayed for them. And when he did, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, Simon, being a former witch doctor, you know, saw Peter do this. And he didn't have all this Christianity stuff quite figured out yet. So he said to Peter, man, that's a pretty cool trick you did there. Could you teach me how to do that trick? In fact, if you will, I'll pay you some money. Now, I'm not teaching anything from the story. I'm using it as an example to show you. Look in verse 22. This is Peter's answer to Simon. Verse 22 says, Repent, therefore, of this thy wickedness, and pray God, if perhaps, notice this phrase, the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. Now, if you would go back to Genesis chapter 6 right quick. My first statement was that man's thoughts are connected to his heart. Now, let's look in Genesis chapter 6. I'm going to read verse 5 again. And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. My first statement was man's thoughts are connected to his heart. My second statement is this, man's heart is evil. Now, I grew up in the south in Louisiana. I probably mention that every time I come here. I mention it just about every time I go anywhere to preach. It comes out somehow. But I grew up down in Louisiana, out in the country, on a dead-end dirt road, uh, two houses on the road. And living out in the country like that, my father taught me all kinds of things. He taught me how to plant a garden. He taught me how to cut a row with a hoe, how deep to cut it, uh, how many peas or beans to put in and how many far, how far apart to put them and how deep to bury them and how much to water them. He taught me to put a stake in the ground, let the tomato grow up it. He taught me to let the uh, cucumbers and the cantaloupe and the watermelons grow out on the, on the ground. He taught me, uh, which, uh, uh, beans or peas to pick when they were still moist in the hull and which ones to wait and let them dry, then pick them. He taught me how to cut a board with a saw, a hand saw, a skill saw, a table saw. He taught me how to milk a cow, how to feed a calf with a bottle. But you know, my dad, he never taught me how to lie. <laughs> he never set me down one day and said, son, today we're going to work on lying. And if you get that down real good, tomorrow we'll work on being angry. <laughs> and, and then the next day we'll work on being selfish. He didn't have to teach me any of those things. Man's heart is evil. So my first statement is, man's thoughts are connected to his heart. My second statement is, man's heart is evil. Now if you would look at verse 6. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him, God, at his heart. My first statement was man's thoughts are connected to his heart. My second statement is man's heart is evil. And my third 
statement is this. The condition of man's heart grieves God's heart. And that leads me to my fourth statement. My fourth statement is this. The condition of man's heart is very important. Look at verse 7. In fact, I want to show you two decisions that God made based on the condition of man's heart. Look at verse 7. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping things and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. Would you look at me for a second? The condition of man's heart is so important to God that one of the two biggest decisions he ever made, he made it based on the condition of man's heart. He decided, I'm going to destroy the whole earth. I want to kill everybody on the earth except for just those he put in the ark and every beast except for two of each and seven of some. And, and, but basically he destroyed the whole earth based on the condition of man's heart. Now, the other big decision that God made that I'm, that we're looking at tonight as an example was also based on the condition of man's heart. Look in chapter 8. In Acts chapter 8, I'm sorry, uh, Genesis chapter 8, uh, we're going to look at verse 21. I want to show you another major decision God made that was based on the condition of man's heart. Verse 21 says, And the Lord smelled a sweet savor, and the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the earth any more for man's sake. This was after the flood, of course. For the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more everything living as I have done. Would you look at me for a second? My point, my fourth point is that man's heart is very important to God. So important that two of the biggest decisions he ever made to destroy the whole earth and... Never do that again. They were both based on the condition of man's heart. When it dawned on God, well, okay, I understand. Nothing ever really dawned on God because God's always known everything. But to put it in our language, when it dawned on God that if I just keep on destroying the earth, every time I get grieved about the condition of man's heart, I'm going to destroy it over and over and over again. And so he said, since man's heart is evil uh, from his youth up, uh, I, I'm, I'm going to make a decision right here and now. I'm never going to do that again. I'm never going to destroy the earth again. In fact, the condition of man's heart is so important to God, I have found so far in the Bible, and I doubt I'm finished, but I have found so far in the Bible 132 different descriptions of the of man's heart. And I don't mean four or five descriptions that God repeats 132 times. I mean 132 so far descriptions of a man's heart. And 106 of those descriptions are descriptions of the kind of heart that God does not want me and you to have. He doesn't want us to have a sorrowful heart or a lifted up heart or a deceived heart or wicked or turned away or faint or trembling or fearful or melted. And by the way, don't get scared. I'm not going to read all 106 of them. But God does not want us to have a grieved heart or proud or forward or, or, or haughty or wounded or deceitful or stony or weak or exhausted or rebellious, 106 different descriptions of the heart God does not want us to have. And our heart's so important to Him, He put in 26 more descriptions of the kind of heart that He does want us to have. 
And again, don't get scared. I'm not going to teach about all 26 of them tonight. But we are going to look at three of them. We're going to look at three of the kinds of heart that God wants me and you to have. The first one we're going to look at tonight is the fact that God wants me and you to have a soft heart. Remember what Job said? He said, for God maketh my heart soft. Remember what David said? Harden not thine heart. Uh, Let me show you an example of how you might have a hard heart. Turn to the book of Mark, if you would, please. The book of Mark, uh, chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. We're going to use our Bible quite a bit tonight. So if you'll turn with us to the different passages, I believe you'll get a little more out of it. So if you'll turn to Mark chapter 6. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus has told the disciples, uh, the apostles, uh, to get in a ship and row across the, 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 the lake in the middle of the night. And they got about halfway across the, the, the lake of, uh, of, of, uh, I mean, the Sea of Galilee. It's a big lake, like Lake Michigan. And, and they, they get about halfway across and a big storm comes and they're rowing as hard as they can. They can't make any more progress. So Jesus walks out on the water. To them, and look in verse 51. I'm in Mark chapter 6, and look at verse 51. And he, speaking of Jesus, went up unto them into the ship, and the wind ceased, and they were sore amazed in themselves beyond measure, and wondered, for they considered not the miracle of the loaves, for their heart was hardened. Who's he talking about there? He's talking about the apostles. I suppose 12 or at least 11 of the best Christians in the whole world. You remember the night, remember the, the time that Jesus decided he was, he was going to choose 12 men to be his apostles? He had thousands and thousands of disciples. On some occasions, four or five thousand or more would come hear him preach. But one night he decided, tomorrow morning, I'm going to choose 12 men to be my apostles. So the Bible said he prayed all night the night before. And the next morning he chose 12. I, I suppose 12 or at least 11 of the best Christians in the whole world, but it said they had a hard heart. Would you turn to chapter 16? I want to show you another example. Mark chapter 16, last chapter in the book of Mark. This is after the resurrection. Would you look at verse 14? Mark chapter 16, verse 14. Afterward, after the resurrection, he, Jesus, appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat and upbraided them, we'd say ripped their face off, uh, he upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. Could you look at me for a moment? Here in our lifetime, 2,000 years later, on the other side of the world, you and I heard the gospel because of what God did through the lives of those 11 men. Right before Jesus went back to heaven, he had one last command. He said, hey, fellas, I need you to take the gospel and spread it around the world. And the 11 men that he chose to give that message, that that uh, that uh, uh, commandment to, I suppose they were 11 of the best Christians in the whole world. But he said they had a hard heart. My point is this. The, even a good Christian can have a hard heart in some area of their life. And I'm say, when I say a good Christian, you know, sometimes us preachers, now your pastor never does this, I'm sure, but some of us preachers sometimes make a statement and we're a little 
smart aleck in the way we say it because we're trying to make a point. But I'm not being smart aleck right now when I say a good Christian. You might be the best Christian in the room tonight. And I mean sincerely, the best Christian in the room tonight. And when I say the best Christian, I don't mean the one who thinks he's the best Christian. Whoever that is probably isn't. But I'm talking about the one that loves this book. I'm talking about the one that reads it, memorizes it, meditates on it. I'm talking about the one that has a pocket full of tracts and he passes them out. I'm talking about the one that wins folks to Christ. I'm talking about the one that gives extra offering to the debt retirement. I'm talking about the one that pays his tithe. I'm talking about the one that is faithful to church, that loves his spouse and, and, uh, and, and, and is a hard worker on the job and, 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 and uh, you, you know, respected by his... I'm talking about a, a sincerely, whoever is the best Christian in this room tonight could possibly have a hard heart in some one area of their life. Can I show you an example of that? How that's possible? Would you turn to the book of Deuteronomy? The book of Deuteronomy chapter 15. I will show you an example of how even a good Christian, even the best Christian in the room tonight could possibly have a hard heart in some one area of your life. Would you look in Deuteronomy chapter 15, in the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. I'm trying to help the Hiles Anderson graduates there. In Deuteronomy chapter 15, let's look at verse 7. Deuteronomy 15, 7 says, If there be among you a poor man of one of thy brethren within any of thy gates... In thy land, which the Lord thy God giveth thee, thou shalt not harden thine heart, nor shut thine hand from thy poor brother. Would you look at me for a second? In this particular case, the shutting of the hand is an outward indication of an inward hardened heart. Now, tonight I'm not preaching about who you should help or who you shouldn't help. That's a whole different subject. I'm not going there tonight. My point is not who you should or shouldn't help tonight. My point is this. It is possible for you to be a good Christian but have a hard heart in some one area of your life. God wants me and you to have a soft heart. Not only does he want us to have a soft heart, he wants us to have a willing heart. And by the way, the next two points of my three points, well, I won't spend near as much time on either one of them. So turn with me, if you would, right quick to the book of Exodus, chapter 25. We're going to look very briefly at the next two kinds of heart that God wants us to have. First, he wants us to have a soft heart. Now, if you'll go to Exodus chapter 25... In Exodus chapter 25, God is talking to Moses and God is telling Moses to build the tabernacle. And then he says to Moses in Exodus chapter 25 verse 1, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel that they bring me an offering of every man that giveth it willingly with his heart, ye shall take my offering." God wants me and you to have a heart that is soft enough that it would be willing to give whatever he asks us to give. Look look in uh, chapter 35, if you would, please. Exodus chapter 35. In Exodus chapter 35, we're going to read verse 5. Exodus 35, 5 says, Take ye from among you an offering unto the Lord... 
Whosoever is of a, notice this phrase, willing heart, let him bring it, an offering of the Lord, gold and silver and brass, and he goes on to mention different kinds of skin and wood and spices and stones. But the point is this. Would you look at me for a second? The point is this. God wants me and you to have a heart that is soft enough that it would be willing to give whatever he laid on our heart, whatever he told us, or can I use this word, whatever he stirs our heart to do. That's my third point. He wants me and you to have a heart that is soft enough that it is willing to give whatever he stirs us to give. And by the way, don't get... Don't, again, don't get scared. I, I, I'm not teaching tonight on, on, you know, we're going to take up a big offering and the pastor's going to get up when I'm done and announce. You know, at least I don't know anything about it. But, uh, uh, that's not the point tonight. The point is not, you know, who you help. And the point tonight is not what offering you give. The point tonight is this. God wants me and you, our heart, the condition of our heart is very important to God. And, and he wants you and me to have a heart that is soft enough that we are willing to give give whatever he stirs us to give. Look in verse 21, if you would, please. I'm still in chapter 35, and now I'm in verse 21. And they came, everyone whose heart, notice, stirred him up, and everyone whom his spirit made willing, and they brought the Lord's offering to the work of the tabernacle of the congregation and all his, uh, and for all his service and for the holy garments. And they came, both men and women, as many as were willing-hearted, and brought bracelets and earrings and rings and tablets of uh, all jewels of gold. And every man uh, offered, offered a offering of gold unto the Lord. You see what I'm saying there? God wants me and you to have a heart that is soft enough that it is willing to give whatever he stirs us to give or to do whatever he stirs us to do. Would you look one last passage, chapter 36. Chapter 36, I'm in Exodus chapter 36, and I'm going to begin with verse 1. Exodus 36, 1 says, Then wrought Bezaliel and Aholiab... And every wise-hearted man in whom the Lord put wisdom and understanding to know how to work all manner of work for the service of the sanctuary according to all that the Lord had commanded. And Moses called Bezaliel and Aholiab, and every wise-hearted man in whose heart the Lord had put wisdom, even everyone whose heart stirred him up to come unto the work to do it. Now, would you look at me one last time? What God wants from you and me is He wants us to have a heart that is soft enough that it is willing to give or willing to do whatever it is that He stirs our heart to give or stirs our heart to do. You notice in this passage here, some of the people, their heart was stirred to bring an offering. In fact, if you read the whole story, they they brought so much that the people that were building the tabernacle had to stop building for a few moments and go tell Moses, Moses, would you please tell the people to quit bringing so much stuff? We can't use it all. And, and, and can you imagine that happening? <laughs> but but it's what happened. And, and then the others, God stirred them up to do the work of the of the of the of the, uh, of the tabernacle. Do you and I have a heart that is soft enough that it is willing to do or willing to give anything that God 
stirs our heart to do or stirs our heart to give. In 1970, my former pastor, Brother Jack Hiles, the man that God used to start Hiles Anderson College, he was preaching a meeting out in Pomona, California. Back then, or for many, over 30 years of his life, every Monday and Tuesday of the year, he would leave on Monday morning, he'd go preach a meeting somewhere, and fly home Wednesday morning and preach for us on Wednesday night. He was in Pomona, California. He preached Monday night, Tuesday morning, Tuesday night. Tuesday night, after he finished preaching, he went back to his room. He got undressed, put on his pajamas, got in bed, was going to go to bed for the night, get up and fly home Wednesday morning like he did every week. But that night, after laying in bed for about an hour, he couldn't fall asleep. So he came to the conclusion that since I can't sleep, God must want me to pray. So he got up, he got dressed, he went outside in front of the hotel, and he walked up and down the street in front of the hotel all night long, from about midnight till daylight the next morning. And that night, walking up and down that street in front of that hotel in Pomona, California, God stirred his heart to begin what became known as Hiles Anderson College. He came back to our church, or their church, I wasn't there at the time. He came back to the church and he announced to the church, First Baptist Church, that God had stirred his heart to start a college. A college that would train preacher boys and missionaries and, and their wives and school teachers and, and laymen that would serve the Lord full time and, and, and so forth. And, and so he said to the church, I believe if we start a college and if we keep it going long enough that maybe someday, somewhere out there in the future, God might give us one of these days as many as maybe he said maybe, oh, God might give us 300 students someday. He said, so here's what I believe we ought to do. He said, I think we ought to buy some property. We ought to build a campus that will accommodate about 250 students. He said, that way, if we ever do have 300 students. He said, uh, maybe uh, we can expand a little bit. Maybe we can uh, uh, maybe uh, remodel a little bit and later on accommodate 275 and then later on 300 students, maybe someday out in the future. And so they did. They bought 27 acres in the middle of a swamp about 14 miles from our church. And they drained that swamp, filled it in, began to build a campus. And about uh, two years later, in September of uh, 1972, they opened the doors of Hiles Anderson College. And the first year of the college, they enrolled 368 students. Well, Hiles panicked. <laughs> he, he thought, now what am I going to do? He, he didn't have another two years to build a new campus. So he began to look for a new campus. And sure enough, seven miles down the road from our campus, on a little sort of backside country road, there was another campus that he had never noticed before. It was a Catholic seminary. They were uh, a, a monastery. They were training monks for the, for the ministry and the Catholic ministry. And so he went there and he said, I'd like to buy your campus from you. And they said, well, there's two problems with that. Number one, our campus is not for sale. And they said, number two, if we ever sold this campus, the Baptists would be the last people we'd ever sell it to. And Brother Howell said, and I don't know if he said it out loud or not, but at least in his heart he said, you're right. The Baptists will be the last people you sell this campus to. And so Brother Howell began to pray that God would give him that campus. And every month... One night per month, he would go to that campus after midnight. He would take his shoes off and he would walk around the perimeter of that hundred acre campus and he would pray till daylight the next morning that God would give him that campus. 
about a year and a half later, they called Brother Hiles back and they said, you know, the strangest thing happened. In the last year, our enrollment plummeted. We only have seven students left. Would you want to still consider buying our campus? So Brother Hiles went out and met with them and negotiated the price. And the price was going to be two and a half million dollars. He signed a contract with them that we would lease the property for two years. And at the end of that two years, those lease payments would become part of the down payment. And we'd pay the balance of two and a half million dollars cash. It was good. The deadline was December 31st, 1975. And Brother Howes always said the night he signed that contract for two and a half million dollars, he didn't have two and a half dollars. <laughs> he said, but he signed the contract and they began to pray and, and try to raise the money and and uh, so by, uh, by the uh, fall of 1974, it was coming down to the, uh, uh, the, uh, the, the uh, I'm sorry, 1975, by the, by the fall of 1975, it was coming down to the deadline. And by uh, December 31st, midnight, they had to have two and a half million dollars. By that time, I was a student there on the campus. And I was involved in it. I was trying to help raise the money. We were going, all of us students were going door to door, selling Bibles and just doing everything we could to raise the money. But we were, oh, we were woefully short. We had less than a million dollars. When we left to go home for Christmas, December 1975, about two weeks before the deadline, every student, myself included, I did it just like everybody else. We all had to go by the front office and we didn't have computers and, you know, and all that back then. So we all took a three by five card. And we wrote down our name and our address, our home address, and we left it in the front office. Because if they didn't get the rest of the two and a half million within the next two weeks, they were going to lose the campus and we wouldn't have a college to come back to. So they were going to mail all our stuff home to us after Christmas. That's how close we came to losing the campus. But back up just a few months. One Sunday morning at the First Baptist Church of Hammond, Brother Howes was conducting the service. And that particular morning, the words Howells Anderson College had not been said one time in the service. That particular morning, there had been no reference to the two and a half million dollars. That particular morning, the deadline had not been mentioned one time uh, uh, that, that morning in the service. They were taking up the offering. Over here, sitting somewhere on this side of the auditorium, there was a lady sitting in one of the pews. She was just sitting there and they were taking up the offering and she noticed the offering plate go down the row and back down the next row and down the next row and it was getting closer and closer to her. And all of a sudden, something stirred her heart. She quickly reached down in her purse and fumbled around for a minute and found a little piece of paper. She grabbed a pen and she wrote, sell this and apply it to the college. And she reached down and pulled off her wedding bands and stuck them in that little piece of paper and crumpled it up and dropped it in the offering plate. 4,500 seat auditorium, jam-packed every service. You remember, extra chairs in the aisles, every service. Sitting somewhere over here on this side of the auditorium, there was a lady who had no earthly idea what that lady had just done. This lady was sitting there and she saw... The offering plates going down the pews, coming closer to her. And all of a sudden, something stirred her heart. She grabbed her Bible. She flipped through it. She found a blank piece of paper. She quickly scribbled, sell this, and apply it to the college. And she reached down and pulled off her wedding bands 
and put them in that little piece of paper and crumpled it up and dropped them in the offering plate. Setting up in the balcony, and our balcony in that auditorium is much different than yours. In that balcony, the balcony comes out about two-thirds of the way over the main floor. If you're sitting in the balcony, you can barely see the platform. You can't see anything on the first floor. Nobody in the balcony could see what anybody was doing on the first floor. There was a lady sitting up in the balcony. She did the exact same thing. That Sunday afternoon when the deacons counted the offering for the First Baptist Church of Hammond, there were 83 sets of wedding bands in the offering plates. That morning, there were 83 ladies who had a heart that was soft enough that it was willing to give or willing to do anything that God, I said God stirred them. Our pastor, (laughs) are you going to get up any time in the near future and say, okay, ladies, this morning I'd like for every lady in the room to take your wedding bands off and put them in the yard. (laughs) No pastor would ever do that. He had never remotely referred to anything vaguely similar to what those ladies did that morning. But their heart was soft enough that they were willing to give, willing to do what God stirred them to do. The big question tonight is this. Is Ray Young's heart soft enough that it's willing to give or willing to do anything God stirs my heart? And of course, the follow-up question is, how about your heart? I'd like to have every head bowed and every eye closed. I know it's Wednesday night. I know you many times do not give an invitation.